Chapter Forty Six of A Red Wallflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. Chapter Forty Six. A Visit. Pitt sailed for America in the early days of autumn, and September had not yet run out when he arrived in New York. His first researches, as on former occasions, amounted to nothing, and several days passed with no fruit of his trouble. The intelligence received at the post office gave him no more than he had been assured of already. They believed a letter did come occasionally to a certain Colonel Gainsborough, but the occasions were not often. The letters were not called for regularly, and the address, further than that it was New York, was not known. Pitt was thrown upon his own resources, which narrowed down pretty much to observation and conjecture. To exercise the former, he perambulated the streets of the city. His brain was busy with the latter constantly, whenever its energies were not devoted to seeing and hearing. He roved the streets in fair weather and foul, and at all hours. He watched keenly all the figures he passed, at least until assured they had no interest for him. He peered into shops, he reviewed equipages. In those days it was possible to do this to some purpose, if a man were looking for somebody. The streets were not as now, filled with a confused and confusing crowd, going always at once, and no policeman was needed, even for the most timid, to cross Broadway where it was busiest. What a chance there was then for the gay part of the world to show itself! A lady would heave in sight, like a ship in the distance, and come bearing down with colors flying. One all alone, or two together, having the whole sidewalk for themselves. Slowly they would come and pass, in the full leisure of display, and disappear, giving place to a new sail just rising to view. No such freedom of display and monopoly of admiration is anywhere possible any longer in the city of Gotham. Pitt had been walking the streets for days, and was weary of watching the various feminine craft which sailed up and down in them. None of them were like the one he was looking for, neither could he see anything that looked like the colonel's straight, slim figure and soldierly bearing. He was weary, but he persevered. A man in his position was not open to the charge of looking for a needle in a haystack, such as would now be justly brought to him. New York was not quite so large then as it is now. It is astonishing to think what a little place it was in those days, when Walker Street was not yet built on its north side, and there was a pond at the corner of Canal Street, and Chelsea was in the country. When the West End was at State Street, and St. George's Church was in Beekman Street, and Beekman Street was a place of fashion. The city was neither so dingy nor so splendid as it is now, and the bright sun of our climate was pouring all the gold it could upon its roofs and pavements, those September days when Pitt was trying to be everywhere and to see everything. One of those sunny, golden days he was sauntering as usual down Broadway, enjoying the clear ether which was troubled by neither smoke nor cloud. Sauntering along carelessly, yet never for a moment forgetting his aim, when his eye was caught by a figure which came up out of a side street and turned into Broadway just before him. Pitt had but a cursory glance at the face, but it was enough to make him follow the owner of it. He walked behind her at a little distance, scrutinizing the figure. It was not like what he remembered Esther. 
He had said to himself, of course, that Esther must be grown up before now. Nevertheless, the image in his mind was of Esther as he had known her, a well-grown girl of thirteen or fourteen. This was no such figure. It was of fair medium height, or rather more. The dress was as plain as possible, yet evidently that of a lady, and as unmistakable was the carriage. Perhaps it was that more than anything which fixed Pitt's attention. The erect, supple figure, the easy, gliding motion, and the set of the head. For among all the multitude that walk, a truly beautiful walk is a very rare thing, and so is a truly fine carriage. Pitt could not take his eyes from this figure. A few swift strides brought him near her, and he followed, watching, balancing hopes and doubts. That was not Esther as he remembered her, but then years had gone by, and was not that set of the head on the shoulders precisely Esther's? He was meditating how he could get another sight of her face, when she suddenly turned and ran up a flight of steps and went in at a door, without ever giving him the chance he wanted. She had a little portfolio under her arm, like a teacher, and she paused to speak to the servant who opened the door to her. Pitt judged that it was not her own house. The lady was probably a teacher. Esther could not be a teacher, but at any rate he would wait and get another sight of her. If she went in, she would probably come out again. But Pitt had a tiresome waiting of an hour. He strolled up and down, or stood still, leaning against a railing, never losing that door out of his range of vision. The hour seemed three. However, at the end of it, the lady did come out again, but just when he was at his farthest, and she turned and went up the street again the way she had come, walking with a quick step. Pitt followed. Where she had turned into Broadway, she turned out of it, and went down an unattractive side street, passing from that into another and another, less and less promising with every corner she turned, till she entered the one which we know was not at all eligible where Colonel Gainsborough lived. Pitt's hopes had been gradually falling, and now, when the quarry disappeared from his sight in one of the little humble houses which filled the street, he for a moment stood still. Could she be living here? He would have thought she had come merely to visit some poor protégé, but that she had certainly seemed to take a latch-key from her pocket and let herself in with it. Pitt reviewed the place, waited a few minutes, and then went up himself the few steps which led to that door, and knocked. Bell, there was none. People who had bells to their doors did not live in that street. But as soon as the door was opened, Pitt knew where he was, for he recognized Barker. She was not the one, however, with whom he wished first to exchange recognitions. So he contented himself with asking in an assured manner for Colonel Gainsborough. Yes, sir, he's in, said Barker doubtfully. As he stood in the doorway, she could not see the visitor well. Who will I say wants to see him, sir? A gentleman on business. Another minute or two, and Pitt stood in the small room which was the colonel's particular room, and was face to face with his old friend. Esther was not there, and without looking at anything, Pitt felt in a moment the change that must have come over the fortunes of the family. The place was so small. There did not seem to be room in it for the colonel and him. But the colonel was like himself. They stood and faced each other. "'Have I changed so much, Colonel?' he said at last. "'Do you not know me?' "'William Dallas,' said the Colonel, 
I know the voice. But yes, you have changed. You have changed, certainly. It is the difference between the boy and the man. What else it is, I cannot see in this light, or this darkness. It grows dark early in this room. Sit down. So you have got back at last. The greeting was not very cordial, Pitt felt. I have come back, for a time, but I have been home repeatedly before this. So I suppose, said the colonel dryly, of course, hearing nothing of you, I could not be sure how it was. I have looked for you, sir, every time and almost everywhere. Look for us? Ha! It is not very difficult to find anybody when you know where to look. Pardon me, Colonel Gainsborough, that was precisely not my case. I did not know where to look. I have been here for days now, looking, till I was almost in despair. Only I knew you must be somewhere, and I would not despair. I have looked for you in America and in England. I went down to Gainsborough Manor to see if I could hear tidings of you there. Every time that I came home to Seaforth for a visit, I took a week of my vacation and came here and hunted New York for you. Always in vain. The shortest way would have been to ask your father, said the colonel, still dryly. My father? I asked him, and he could tell me nothing. Why did you not leave us some clue by which to find you? Clue, said the colonel. What do you mean by clue? I have not hid myself. But if your friends do not know where you are, your father could have told you. He did not know your address, sir. I asked him for it repeatedly. Why did he not give it to you? said the colonel, throwing up his head like a war horse. He said you had not given it to him. That is true since we came to this place. I have had no intercourse with Mr. Dallas for a long time, not since we moved into our present quarters, and our address here he does not know, I suppose. He ceased writing to me, and of course I ceased writing to him. From you we have never heard at all since we came to New York. But I wrote, sir, said Pitt, in growing embarrassment and bewilderment. I wrote repeatedly. What do you suppose became of your letters? I cannot say. I wrote letter after letter, till, getting no answer, I was obliged to think it was in vain, and I too stopped writing. Where did you direct your letters? Not to your address here, which I did not know. I enclosed them to my father, supposing he did know it, and begged him to forward them. I never got them, said the colonel, with that same dry accentuation. It implied doubt of somebody. And could Pitt blame him? He kept in mortified silence for a few minutes. He felt terribly put in the wrong, and undeservedly. And, but he tried not to think. I am afraid to ask. What you thought of me, sir? Well, I confess, I thought it was not just like the old William Dallas that I used to know, or rather, not like the young William. I supposed you had grown old, and with age comes wisdom. That is the natural course of things. You did me injustice, Colonel Gainsborough. I am willing to think it, but it is somewhat difficult. Take my word at least for this. I have never forgotten. I have never neglected. I sought for you as long as possible, and in every way that was possible, whenever I was in this country. I left off writing, but it was because writing seemed useless. 
I have come now in pursuance of my old promise. Come on the mere chance of finding you, which, however, I was determined to do. Your promise? You surely remember. The promise I made you, that I would come to look for you when I was free, and if I was not so happy as to find you, would take care of Esther. Well, I am here yet, said the colonel meditatively. I did not expect it, but here I am. You are quit of your promise. I have not desired that, sir. Well, that count is disposed of, and I am glad to see you. But Pitt did not feel the truth of the declaration. Now tell me about yourself. In response to which followed a long account of Pitt's past, present, and future, so far as his worldly affairs and condition were concerned, and so far as his own plans and purposes dealt with both. The colonel listened, growing more and more interested, thought out a good deal in his manner, yet maintained on the whole an indifferent apartness which was not in accordance with the old times, and the liking he then certainly cherished for his young friend. Pitt could not help the feeling that Colonel Gainsborough wished him away. It began to grow dark, and he must bring this visit to an end. "'May I see Esther?' he asked, after a slight pause in the consideration of this fact, and with a change of tone which a mother's ear would have noted, and which perhaps Colonel Gainsborough's was jealous enough to note. The answer had to be waited for a second or two. "'Not to-night,' he said, a little hurriedly. "'Not to-night.' You may see her tomorrow. Pitt could not understand his manner, and went away with half a frown and half a smile upon his face, after saying that he would call in the morning. It had happened all this while that Esther was busy upstairs, and so had not heard the voices, nor even knew that her father had a visitor. She came down soon after his departure to prepare the tea. The lamp was lit, the little fire kindled for the kettle, the table brought up to the colonel's couch, which, as in old times, he liked to have so, and Esther made his toast and served him with his cups of tea, in just the old fashion. But the way her father looked at her was not just in the old fashion. He noticed how tall she had grown. It was no longer the little Esther of Seaforth times. He noticed the lovely lines of her supple figure, as she knelt before the fire with the toasting fork and raised her other hand to shield her face from the blaze. His eye lingered on her rich hair in its abundant coils, on the delicate hands, but though it went often to the face, it as often glanced away and did not dwell there. Yet it could not but come back again, and the colonel's own face took a grim set as he looked. Oddly enough, he said never a word of the event of the afternoon. "'You had somebody here, Papa, a little while ago,' Barker says." Yes. Who was it? Called himself a gentleman on business. What business, Papa? It is not often that business comes here. It wasn't anything about taxes? No. I've got all that ready, said Esther contentedly, so he may come when he likes. The tax man, I mean. What business was this then, Papa? It was something about an old account, my dear, that he wanted to set right. There had been a mistake, it seems. Anything to pay? inquired Esther with a little anxiety. No, it's all right, or so he says. Esther thought it was somewhat odd, but, however, was willing to let the subject of a settled account go. 
and she had almost forgotten it when her father broached a very different subject. "'Would you like to go to live in Seaforth again, Esther?' "'Seaforth, Papa?' she repeated, much wondering at the question. "'No, I think not. I loved Seaforth once, dearly. But we had friends there then, or we thought we had. I do not think it would be pleasant to be there now.' "'Then what do you think of our going back to England? You do not like this way of life, I suppose, in this pitiful place. I have kept you here too long.' What had stirred the colonel up to so much speculation? Esther hesitated. Papa, I know our friends there seem very eager to have us, and so far it would be good. But if we went back, have we enough to live upon and be independent? No. Then I would rather be here. We are doing very nicely, Papa. You are very comfortable, are you not? I am very well placed and earning money. Enough money. Really, we are not poor any longer, and it is so nice to be independent. Not poor, said the colonel between a groan and a growl. What do you call poor? For you and for me to be in this doleful street is to be all that, I should say. Papa, said Esther, her lips wreathing into a smile. I think nobody is poor who can live and pay his debts, and we have no debts at all. "'by dint of hard work on your part and deprivation on mine.' "'Papa,' said Esther, the smile fading away, "'what did he mean by deprivation? "'I thought—I hoped you were comfortable?' "'Comfortable?' groaned and growled the colonel again. "'I believe, Esther, you have forgotten what comfort means, "'or rather, you never knew. "'For us to be in a prison like this and shut out from the world—' Papa, I never thought you cared for the world, and this does not feel like a prison to me. I have been very happy here, and free, and, oh, so thankful. If you remember how we were before, Papa. All the same, said the Colonel, it is not fitting that those who are meant for the world should live out of it. I wish I had taken you home years ago. You see nobody. You have seen nobody all your life but one family, and I wish you had never seen them. The Dallases? Oh, why, Papa? You do not care for them, I suppose, now? I do not care for them at all, Papa. I did care for one of them very much, once, but I have given him up long ago. When I found he had forgotten us, it was not worth while for me to remember. That is all dead. His father and mother, I doubt if ever they were real friends to you or to me, Papa. I am inclined to think William was not so much to blame. It was his father's fault, perhaps. It does not make much difference, said Esther easily. If anything could make him forsake us, after the old times, he is not worth thinking about, and I do not think of him. That is an ended thing. There was a little something in the tone of the last words which allowed the hearer to divine that the closing of that chapter had not been without pain and that the pain had perhaps scarcely died out. But he did not pursue the subject, nor say any more about anything. He only watched his daughter, uninterruptedly, though stealthily, watched every line of her figure, glanced at the sweet, fair face, followed every quiet, graceful movement. Esther was studying, and part of the time she was drawing, absorbed in her work, yet throughout, what most struck her father was the high happiness that sat on her whole person, 
it was in the supreme calm of her brow it was in a half-appearing smile which hardly broke and yet informed the soft lips with a constant sweetness it seemed to the colonel to appear in her very positions and movements and probably it was true for the lines of peace are not seen in an uneasy figure nor do the movements of grace come from a restless spirit the colonel's own brow should have unbent at the sweet sight but it did not he drew his brows lower and lower over his watching eyes and now and then set his teeth in a grim sort of way for which there seemed no sort of provocation the heart knoweth his own bitterness no doubt colonel gainsborough's tasted its own particular draught that night which he shared with nobody end of chapter forty six recording by nancy cochran gergen gilbert arizona